I was asked uh, because uh, somebody asked me coming here and said, I, I understand that you're a Mennonite. And how did somebody who's a Mennonite get to be reformed in their theology? And I said, if you're surprised, just think how shocked people in my own denomination are about that. Um, I guess that's not that funny. I thought it would be. Uh, <clears throat> well, if you uh, have Bibles with you, uh, let's uh, open them to Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Um, I'll take you through what I say normally. Uh, Don had said what you say, and normally when I open the Word of God, I always begin with these words, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and this is. So let's read together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which, shall I, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I recently had an opportunity. Um, I'm sorry, I've got two of these out here, and I don't try to figure this out, and somehow or other, just allow me to get this a little lower. There we go. It's good. I recently had an opportunity, and it was this last uh, winter that I spent some time in the, in the Muslim world, and uh, spent some time with underground pastors, pastors leading house churches, uh, many of them in places where they are so easily arrested and at the same time, individuals who have taken upon themselves uh, everything for the sake of the cross. Uh, we met together in, uh, in, a, in a basement of a large house. It would have held um, uh, probably around 150 to 200 people. Uh, it is uh, all uh, so well insulated so that individuals can sing as loudly as they want to in that place, and you can pretty well stand on the outside and put your ear to the to the wall and not hear a word that's being sung. I thought I've been around some pretty joyous worship in my past, but I have never seen anything like what I saw among those brothers who praised and worshiped Jesus in a way that I've never seen. Many of them began to tell their story, and I'll never forget one story of an individual who simply wanted to tell his story uh, in his own country. He told of a very prominent businessman in his city who had come to faith in Christ and uh, he has had a number of businesses throughout the city, was well known, and began to openly proclaim the gospel. In short order, the authorities came to his home, and the first act they took against him is they took his two young daughters out of the home and adopted them into a Muslim home so that they would not be raised in a Christian family. Next, they removed his wife from his home. They closed his businesses and arrested him. And the brother that was telling the story said he went to see him in prison. He had the courage to go visit him, and here was a man who had lost everything that one could think to lose. And in the process of doing that, the brother that told the story said he found him in his prison cell. He had been singing praises to Christ. And he said, I knelt before him, 
and I kissed his hand because I wanted to have the honor of kissing the hand that had slapped Satan in the mouth. I was overwhelmed with that story, and uh, of course my first thought was the words of Satan to, to, uh, to God in the book of Job. You'll remember, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And uh, yes, he had not lost his health, but in our terms he had lost so much. And he had begun to testify to the jailers around him and to the prison system that the loving kindness of the Lord our God is better than life. And when those words are so loudly proclaimed in that kind of a context, all of us know that those words are powerful from the mouths of those who are persecuted. But I had a second thought, and my second thought was the thought of a Canadian. And, uh, you know, you and I, we live in this country and we know that Canadians are easily intimidated. I want to say evangelicals are easily intimidated in declaring their faith publicly in the world in which we live. I've met uh, school teachers who feel intimidated of sharing their faith in the classroom. Some of them wonder whether it'll cost them their job. There are other people as well. Um, um, you might think of uh, police officers, uh, fire in, uh, in men, and all sorts of other individuals who have said, you know, I, I would like to share my faith. I don't know what the implications are. Don't know what that will actually lead to. And I felt ashamed coming back and felt ashamed having been there because the book that I was asked to lead these brothers through was the book of 2 Timothy. <laughs> and if you know 2 Timothy, it is Paul's last letter. I think it happens during a second imprisonment. It happens just very shortly before his death. It is a song of great boldness. And what was I doing? Slapping them on the back and saying, keep it up, lads, as I go back to a nation that's intimidated. I felt deeply, deeply ashamed of my role in that conference. Um, but there is another reflection that I had as well, and that reflection surrounds the issue of persecution. And obviously the text that we read will have a lot to say about that, but every once in a while I will hear people say things that sound like this, what we need is a lot more persecution because if we had that, it would rouse the church to activism. And I always react badly when I hear that. And the reason why I react badly is because I think many of us, first of all, who are saying it, have not experienced it. I grew up in a home where I heard about it all of the time. My parents actually grew up in the former Soviet Union in a German-speaking community in the Ukraine. My grandfather was tortured to death for his faith. So I heard the stories growing up all of the time, and it didn't sound very pleasant to me. And now most of the time when I hear people say that, I hear people saying it who I think have not actually tasted it in its raw form, but I think there's something else as well. Persecution has not always roused the church. You know that the churches in North Africa have been basically decimated by persecution. They have not roused themselves now for a great long period of time. I'm not saying that something significant is not happening there now. I think there might be, but even there we must say that at the outset, persecution in fact did not rouse that church. And yet, I do know that the early church grew rapidly in the face of fierce, uncompassionate, sometimes cruel, sometimes even pitiless persecution. And that's the text that we have before us. Now, I'm happy to go through this text. I'm happy also, Don, that you didn't preach all of it. I know you were on your way and that you managed to hold yourself back. It was because of my fervent prayer on your behalf during that time. And... <clears throat> But as Don has already pointed out, that the word gospel comes up in the first chapter, well, it's mentioned six times. But not only is gospel mentioned, but there are words that imply gospel that are mentioned here as well. Uh, notice verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. Well, what are they preaching about Christ? They're preaching the gospel, so the gospel is implied there in verse 15. And uh, you'll notice it again in verse 17. You'll see it, the former proclaim Christ. So you have this proclamation of Christ that happens, which infers the gospel. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is that in the 30 verses that make up this chapter, uh, 10 of them mention or imply the gospel. Gospel, 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 gospel keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's, we have to be blind not to see it. This is about gospel proclamation. So we see that over and over again. Now, before diving right into this text, I want to step back and just consider context for a moment. 
Not only is this about the gospel, I want to say that there is something in this text that teaches us about the mystery of the way in which the gospel goes forward. And this is a very important topic for us. Um, I was just talking with Don. I asked him, I th- how many Christian, uh, evangelical believers you think there are in this land? W- you weren't sure, but you know, I'm not thinking the number is somewhere around a million, but there are 33 million of us, and if that's perhaps high, it, it might be, I don't know, but if that is perhaps high still, we, we must always ask the question, what indeed moves the gospel forward? What is the mystery of the advancement of the gospel? I think that's here in this text. And that's what I'm going to be driving at. Now, I do also want to say that I am a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, I actually am a graduate that actually believes in inerrancy. Uh, By now, you're realizing I'm a Mennonite who's reformed. I'm a graduate of Fuller who believes in inerrancy. There are a lot of strange things about me, um, and we can talk later. But but, but there was, when I was at Fuller, I actually took an independent study from a man named C. Peter Wagner. And those of you who are older will remember that name. He really was the pioneer in the church growth movement. And Wagner thought that the secret of the growing church, which was also the secret of the advancement of Christ on this continent, had something to do with the collection of scientific data, the generating of that data, and using that data in a proper way to produce a set of criteria that would be true of every single church that was in fact growing. So if you could view growing churches not from the perspective of theology but from the perspective of the social sciences, then viewing it from the perspective of the social sciences, you would begin to highlight and key those areas which were common to all church growth. And so, of course, Wagner's seminal work was called Seven Vital Signs of a Healthy Church. And uh, those of you who are older, I suspect, have actually read that. Um, You know, it's it's interesting because his first vital sign was that... uh, All growing churches have this dynamic pastor, a possibility-thinking pastor. I think he had hung out with Robert Schuller for a while to come up with that word. A possibility-thinking pastor uh, whose whose dynamic leadership had been used to, to catalyze the church into growth. In other words, you had to have a super entrepreneur who was at the helm of the thing, who basically would have been the manager of a growing company or the manager of a growing church, because the same principles would have applied to both. I don't think I'm doing Wagner a disservice by putting it that way. I always smile if one of the principles that he had for a growing church was what was called the homogeneous language, or the homogeneous principle, that is all growing churches are made up of one kind of people, that you've got to simply begin to you know, mine a core within your culture. So you begin to reach out to a people that are like your people. I remember being in his class, and, and he, he played a, a, a country and western song, and he said, now, if you're going to reach country and western people, you've got to get your, hair, your wife's hair to poof up like kind of Dolly Parton's hair, all of that kind of stuff. I remember thinking about my wife, and I'm thinking, that's not going to go. And uh, so I know I'm not planning there. Um, but you know, it's interesting to me to now be a pastor of a church. By the way, I never bought that stuff. Never did. Now to be a pastor of a church, and uh, we actually translate it into 10 languages. And we actually have 12 languages spoken on campus every single weekend. No, we're not hiving off to do separate churches so that, you know, you'll have a group of Chinese people here and a group of Filipinos here and, you know, a group of uh, Japanese-speaking people over here and Spanish people over here. We're actually simply saying we're going to put everybody in the same worship service and those who struggle with English will have simply an earphone to put in so that when I preach, they'll hear simultaneous translation at the same time. It's not that we thought up this thing. I mean, it happened years ago, before my time, when a Korean brother said, I think I can help you. And uh, simply said, I can translate into Korean while this is going on. And that simply took upon itself life of its own. We actually never planned that. It just began to cascade in on itself. And uh, now I really should write a book on how I accomplished that. But we didn't. Um, Now, what's so important about the church growth movement is that it brought together these widely disparate theological movements. For instance, uh, later on in the Willow Creek Association, brought together widely disparate theological movements who were brought together not on the basis of theology but on the basis of methodology. And so methodology for a while especially across the evangelical world, became king. It ruled the day. 
And so there was very little discussion, like the kind of discussion that we now have at the Gospel Coalition. I'm just so thankful for, for Don's forward thinking and for his realization that what was needed was a re-energized gospel, that an ancient historic evangelicalism find new roots in the day in which we live. Because it is the gospel itself that is so needed, not a new methodology. And with all of the methodology that has happened, I would say to you today that those churches today that have been most successful in using church growth methodology to accomplish growth have done so almost entirely in the Bible belts and never in the pagan belts. All you have to do is think about this for a moment. I mean, if you were interested in Islam, would you want a form of Islam that is seeker-sensitive or would you want hardcore stuff? Almost every one of us would answer exactly the same way. And such is also the case for those that we wish to proclaim the gospel to. They want to hear the real article. They want to hear the gospel. Tell us what it is so that I can accept it or I can reject it. So I say all of this because we are interested in the growth of the church. But if persecution by itself does not grow the church... And if indeed the methodology, the human-centered means that we've used does also not grow the church, what indeed are the principles that grow the church? And I do think there's something in here that will give us some, some grand insight. Um, the first thing that I want to say is that the gospel goes, grows entirely through the sovereignty of God. Now, one of the reasons for writing Philippians is that Paul uh, is responding to the believers in Philippi regarding a gift that they have sent him. No doubt the Philippian believers were concerned about him in his imprisonment. They wanted to know how he's been doing. Has he been suffering? Is there any other need that they need to care for in his life? Uh, any news about the outcome of his trial? They're simply wanting to grasp everything. And Paul writes this letter to address the concerns that they have. At the same time, Paul is also doing something else. How he is doing and how the gospel is doing in his mind is related entirely. And that's what we need to see. So if you look at verses 12 to 18, which is the first hunk of the first section that we read, it seems clear to me that Paul is showing that the gospel has been advancing in three ways and that the advancement of the gospel is directly related to his imprisonment and his suffering. So let's look at it again. First of all, 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has, sorry, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire whole Roman, I'm sorry, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now there's a lot in here, but at the very outset, we, we, we notice that were it not for the imprisonment of Paul, that a new avenue of gospel proclamation would not have been there. Because Paul was imprisoned, you have this imperial guard, and there are some theories in terms of who they are, but they were probably an elite special guard. They oversaw the emperor's safety. They would probably have consisted of somewhere around 9,000 men. They would have received an elite pay grade. They were professionals, and probably they were the best of the best, and there would have been no other way to reach into that community were it not for the imprisonment of Paul. So Paul's not bright enough that he says to himself, how am I going to reach those guys? What are the key church planting techniques that are now required to reach out to that sliver of the population? Oh, I know, I'll break the law and they'll guard me and then that's how I'll get at that. It's not how it happened. I mean, we know in the story of Acts that this was, in fact, not in Paul's imagination, but it was truly within the plans of God, and Paul knows that. The second thing I notice is that when the imperial guard heard something from Paul, they heard that his, my translation says, his imprisonment was, uh, I'm using the ESV in verse four, uh, 13, it says, for Christ, uh, literally in the Greek, in Christo. So sometimes many of us know that that phrase is often used to build the doctrine of our union with Christ. And so he says, what we might think him to say is that the entire imperial guard has heard that I was imprisoned because of my faith in Jesus, because I would not let go of the gospel, and because of this, individuals in the Jewish community 
And then because of the cowardice of Festus and Felix and all that kind of stuff, I was not released. And then I was forced to appeal to Caesar. And all of these things happened because of the gospel. Now, we might think to ourselves, yes, maybe he's simply saying that the, the elite guard have heard of his sufferings for Christ. But I don't think that's what he's communicating here at all. I think when he says it was in Christ, he says, my, they've all heard that my imprisonment is in Christ. I, I can't help but think about Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, which sound like a parallel phrase, obviously in his second imprisonment here. But in 2 Timothy 1 8, he writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Fascinating that Paul does not call himself Rome's prisoner. He does not call himself a prisoner of the emperor. He doesn't call himself a prisoner of all of the laws which need amending in the Roman Empire. He believes that he is a prisoner of Christ. And therefore, if Paul is speaking to the Roman imperial guard about the gospel, he's not only explaining the gospel to them, he is explaining to them that Jesus Christ is Lord, and as Lord of lords and as King of kings, the one who determines whether or not Paul is in imprisonment never was Caesar, it was always Christ. The imprisonment is in Christ. It is Christ expressing his plans through the life of this man who has directed meticulous sovereignty. All of the details down to the last bit in Paul's life. So Paul has come to recognize that this imprisonment is in Christ. His service in the prison is in Christ. His sharing of the gospel is in Christ. That's the insight that he has. Now, I don't doubt that the Roman guard were also there to watch uh, visitors come, let's say, from the Roman church. I don't doubt that they were also there to watch Paul's own prayer life. I don't doubt that they heard from his mouth the actual gospel itself. But there was something about his meticulous sovereignty of God, this, this viewpoint that he held this sure knowledge that it was Christ that was directing him and not the affairs of the day that must have made a buzz in the imperial guard. Everyone was talking about this thing. This guy thought Christ ruled over everything. That, I think, is the key. So the point is not that people are faithful in spite of persecution. The point is that the persecution itself was the means that God used to advance the gospel, was the very plan that he had to allow the gospel to be heard in the elite corps of the Roman army. That was God's plan. Okay, let's go to the second thing that Paul has noticed about his imprisonment, and that's now in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul has noticed a second thing that's happened. Remember, he's writing the Philippians. You're concerned about my imprisonment. I'm assuming that your concern about my imprisonment is also your concern about the gospel. So I'm telling you, this is so good that I was in prison. One, the elite guard has heard. Secondly, people in Rome have recognized that I'm actually not intimidated by this experience. And in fact, it's energized me. I've seen new avenues that I've never seen before. And people in the Roman church have said, you know what? That's a catching attitude. And all sorts of people in that church became or gathered a boldness that heretofore they had never had in their circumstances. Now, obviously, the, the, the application here is easy to come by. I do think that it is true that most believers are not bold on their own. That boldness is actually taught, it is modeled, as individuals see leaders around them modeling boldness, they see their boldness and they begin to become bold themselves. When they see their own leaders persecuted and not intimidated and watch the response, they say, that's doable. The same Spirit of God is at work in me. I too will become bold. I mean, I would say simply think about the battlefield. I mean, what soldier in and of himself would rush out of a trench a trench and charge at the enemy into a hail of bullets. Yet it has been done in many battles, 
and it is done because there are commanders who understand some principles that if, bold, if boldness is modeled and if boldness is carried on through a period of time, the soldiers under their command begin to sense this boldness. I would argue that when a Christian leader, a pastor, is not afraid of the proclamation of the gospel, continues to stand there regardless of what it takes, the people in that congregation will begin to buy in. That's the idea. Now, I don't want to give you the sense that Paul is somehow this superhero that no matter what happens, I mean, he's just punching back and never bothers to stop and wince. In fact, you know, I've often been intrigued with 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. Let me read this to you because this is so intriguing. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, I mean, I'm reading that and hearing Paul at the end of things, and then at the end of things when he believed that he could not go on, the Spirit of God simply energized him in a way that he would not have been able to do on his own. So I, I don't want to make Paul appear like this individual who does not feel the intimidation the way in which you and I would. Only a man who managed to master this with an understanding of the meticulous sovereignty of God. And by the way, for all of you who are in pastoral ministry, here's what I noticed of what I was not taught in seminary. I was not taught that it takes courage to be a Christian leader. I did not know that until I actually entered into the ranks. I did not realize how quickly there are those who oppose you and how much stamina, patience, forgiveness, yet determination to carry on in gospel proclamation so as not to be dissuaded from one's goal. My son, who's uh, 22 years old, came home about a year ago and said, Mom and Dad, he was studying for medicine, he said, Mom and Dad, and he was weeping. He said, God has called me to pastoral ministry. And I started weeping with him. Um, and the only thing I could think of saying is, son, you're going to suffer. You will suffer for the gospel. But I urge you, do not be unfaithful in the face of it. That's all I could think to say. I mean, I, that's why I'm not a motivational speaker. I say things like that. <laughs> so the imperial guard is heard. We're just getting warmed up here. The Imperial Guard has heard, and, 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 and then the church in Rome is getting bold, and then something else happens, and this is the weirdest thing. I mean, you've got to know, if you never read this before, this would be weird. Some indeed, verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and others from goodwill, and then the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And it's a, it's a weird thing, because you look at this and you say, rivalry gets mentioned twice here, and uh, you have these individuals. Now, it's clear from what we're reading that since Paul is pleased that the gospel is still being proclaimed, we can rule out right off the start that these people that he's mentioning, they're not false teachers. He'll deal with false teachers very differently than this. These are individuals who are preaching a gospel of Jesus that is true and accurate, but there is something wrong with their motivation. And I kind of worked through this and read all sorts of possibilities of what might have led to this rivalry. And the best I can come up with, and whether or not I'm right or wrong, I, you know, I don't know. We weren't there, but, but I have a theory. And the theory goes like this. The Roman church did not, at that point in time, have an apostolic presence in the church. And so this guy by the name of Paul shows up. Even though he comes bound in chains, suddenly you have status in the church which up till that point in time, no one of that status had yet arrived. The man's ability to plant churches, his apostolic wisdom, the authority in which he writes his letters. Uh, on top of that, uh, we know also that uh, his his hard work ethic, his ability to suffer for the gospel, all of this had given Paul a renown that the local preachers in Rome could not equal. And When he moves in, the first feeling that gets felt, my theory, envy. Envy. I mean, here's a guy who just outdoes you. 
And I've got to tell you, I felt a lot of that during my lifetime. I remember reading a story of one pastor who, who said he used to drive by a large church all the time, and he would just look this way and just keep driving until one day he said, I heard the voice of the Lord say, look at it. And uh, he said that was the first time I actually turned my face to look at that because the deep sense of, of being intimidated, envious, all of those feelings are always there. You know, I wish that I could just preach the gospel and never have competitors in the field. But because the Lord knows that I need humility, I had to follow Don Carson here today, and already God was working on me. Um, but here is the, there, it, it would have created quite a, star, a stir. Paul would have been a star beyond theirs. But he's put in prison, and this was their moment. So they redouble their effort. And they decide, we're going to work harder to make sure we don't lose our following, and we're going to make sure that we gain a larger following. We're going to preach the gospel so that our status rises, perhaps, and even eclipse his. And so, if I'm right, that's the motivation that goes out and says, that's what we're going to do. And Paul's response is fascinating. How many of you can do this? Nevertheless, as long as Christ is being preached... Who cares? Let the gospel go forward. I find this a fascinating thing because what is required of us is to have that John the Baptist kind of an attitude. Let someone else increase and I decrease as long as the gospel goes forward. Let the message be heard and widely proclaimed. Whether or not I stand at the center of that thing or stand at the periphery, I mean, I've often said to the Lord, you know, if there would be a national revival, I would be so pleased just to be somewhere in the room and watch this thing. Because I just want to see it with my own eyes. And that is really the attitude that I, I find here in, in, in Paul. So really he puts together something that's fascinating to me. This meticulous sovereignty of God that has allowed the gospel to go forward in great power through an avenue which could never have been foreseen but was accomplished through God's sovereign design. I know that's very disappointing for all of us who have our mind set on methodology only. And I, maybe I should just stop here for a moment. I, I'm not talking as if excellence in ministry is not important. I'm not talking as if we should not design best practices in the way in which we conduct our ministry so that when someone brings a friend, they're not embarrassed by what they see. I, I, I do think that's the case. But having said that, if our value base is on the excellence in our delivery system, rather than on relying on the sovereignty of God to advance the gospel, we will find ourselves relying on human means rather than God's power. And we all know that in the end, human means always ends in failure because God will not share his glory with us. Won't do it. So, so Paul says, mystery of the advancement of the gospel is not that the, just that the gospel grows through the sovereignty of God, but it's also expressed through some difficulties. So I want you to notice as we move from the first uh, 16 verses or whatever we have up to verse 18, I should say, uh, then we come to the next section, which I would say begins at 18b, which takes us all the way through to verse 26. And that section would basically teach us that God has also ordained that the gospel should grow in and through men I could add, and women, who desire nothing but the gospel. I mean, there is a passion that I see now. Paul would say, I rejoice that the gospel is growing. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers, writing to the Philippians, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, we have to ask ourselves what this is, will turn out for my deliverance. Now, if we only read verse 19 in our English Bible, we might say, oh, I know what Paul wants. He thinks that because the Philippians are praying earnestly for him, they know he's in prison, and because the Holy Spirit will attend to this, he's going to be delivered from prison. I mean, that's what he hopes for, that he's going to get out. And if you know your church history, it would seem that he did get out. So everything turned out well. Thank you very much. Except that deliverance is an interesting word. The actual word is salvation. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as we begin to think about deliverance and how we think prayer should end up. I've been a pastor now for a lot of years, and I have noticed a commonality in prayer requests. We at Willingdon make sure that, I mean, we have a prayer altar at the front. Every People come up 
Sunday after Sunday for prayer, and so we have open prayer altars at the front, but we also have people filling out cards, prayer requests, and of all the people I've prayed with and the cards that I've seen coming in and everything else, there is a commonality of a theme, and the theme, I would say, is the theme of deliverance. Um, I've just been diagnosed with inoperable cancer. I pray for deliverance from this cancer. Um, I have a business. We've just been going through very difficult financial times, and I don't know whether we're going to be surviving, and I pray for deliverance, that I could be delivered from this oppressive financial burden and that the business could get back on track and do what it's done before. Um, you know, you just think about prayer request after prayer. Marriage is another huge issue. I mean, our marriage is now stressed to the end. I don't know whether they're going to make it. I pray for deliverance. I'm just hoping that somehow all of these things will turn out well. That's the idea behind so much of our own prayer request. It's deliverance. I'm not ask, uh, arguing that it's wrong to, to pray that way, but I do think that it is all of us that need to spend time with our people and help them to pray prayers that are more in line with God's Word. Now, I want you to notice that the word deliverance here relates in verse 20 to the word or the, the two words that we have in verse 20, it is my eager expectation. So Paul says this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation as it is my eager expectation. Now, that word eager expectation only comes up one other place in the New Testament, and that happens to be in Romans 8 verse 19. And in Romans 8 19, Paul uses the word to say that the creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. So those are the only two places we have that word in our New Testament, but there are other places that the word is used. I found it fascinating to read that jo Josephus used this same word in describing the war of the Jews, and he says that the Jews... They breathlessly awaited. That's how the, the phrase is translated. Same word as eager expectation. They breathlessly awaited the hail of arrows that would come to them from the Romans. Right before the first battle clash, as they have their shields up, there was this eager expectation, which makes it less a statement about, I can't wait till it comes, but there's this overwhelming expectation, and any moment it might be here. So everyone's ready, everyone's braced, everyone's prepared for something which is inevitable, which must come. And so if Paul says, I've got this eager expectation, or I've got this uh, breathlessly awaiting, I, I notice that something is about ready on the horizon. And so what is he expecting? Because of the prayers of God's people and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, something is sure to happen. What is it? Paul will appear before the tribunal, and when he appears before the tribunal, he eagerly expects that he will not be ashamed. That's it. This breathless expectation that when that moment arrives, when what stands before me is life and death, I do not think that I will plead for my life. I do not think that I will beg for mercy or even come before the Lord Jesus himself and plead for my life. I eagerly expect at that moment that I will be bold and that my articulation of the gospel will be overwhelmingly clear in that context. Like the Jewish freedom fighters who eagerly awaited that first clash. This, I know, will happen. And I think that's precisely the salvation that Paul is speaking about here. Now, when you think about that, it is not the kind of deliverance that we think of. It's this kind of deliverance. The gospel must be heard. I've had an opportunity to preach the gospel as I planted churches. I've had an opportunity now to preach the gospel while I'm in Rome to the entire Praetorium Guard. But now I have another expectation that there is another opportunity such as I have never had before to appear before Caesar's tribunal and at that moment it will be a clarion call. All Rome will hear the thunder of Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel that he has heard. I'm waiting for that clash to happen. Now, that is very interesting to me. In other words, this is a man who knows what it means to keep the gospel first. He's never lost sight of the fact that all of the things that are happening are according to the plan of God. 
meticulous sovereignty being worked out in all its details. And now because the Philippians are praying earnestly for him and the Holy Spirit will attend him, he's not even going to worry like Christ said what to say, but it will be given to him in that hour. And he will speak with boldness and all will hear. I, I want to stop here and because I, I, think, I, I think that we need to begin to pray this way. Um, those of you who are pastors, we need to think about that exact opportunity. We need to see the situations that we're involved in and view them as God's meticulous care. See, because you remember I began by saying that persecution by itself does not build or renew the faith, and it doesn't renew the faith when you have individuals who don't understand the meticulous care of God. They wilt under pressure, they run for cover, they hope that the day of persecution will end, they don't see that Jesus Christ is Lord and is governing all things according to his purpose, but when we see it, and when we see the moments that God has given, and there are moments that are unlike other moments, and we all know it, there are moments when there is an opportunity to speak. I had this wonderful moment that happened to me. Um, I was driving down the road, and I heard my name on the radio. I'm not used to hearing my name on the radio, and I don't like hearing my name on the radio, but it came from uh, you know, one of the leading news sources uh, in the lower mainland of British Columbia uh, because some of the people in our church became involved in protesting um, at a local school the fact that the Burnaby School District had an anti-bullying policy when it came to homosexuality which in their view actually equaled, let's start bullying people who actually believe that sexual activity should be confined to one man and one woman in a marriage relationship for life. And they wanted to make sure that they too were not being bullied. Well, of course, the press showed up and said, where are you guys from? Well, they said, we're parents from this area, but are you involved in any church? And so a number of them said, we're involved in Wellington Church. So in no time at all, it was reported that I was giving leadership to this. And I also noticed that I was called not Pastor Newfeld, but Mega Pastor Newfeld. And uh, I think it was a term of endearment. I wasn't sure at first, but it may not have been. And I remember praying about that because it came at a time in my ministry where there were a lot of other things going on at the same time. There was a severe criticism from a staff member who left the staff in a very bad situation, uh, tried to uh, create a spirit of disunity inside the church. So. I was kind of fighting that at the same time, and so a lot of things were congealing, and I remember thinking, Lord, I don't actually need this on top of everything else. And uh, at my first brush, when I simply called the radio station and said, look, I actually am not giving leadership to this, their response was, Mega Pastor Newfeld distances himself from members of his congregation. <laughs> things were turning out very well until I actually got a chance to speak to a reporter who put my Put, my, put me on air, in which she said, are you involved in this? And I didn't answer her question because I was ready. I said, Willingdon Church exists to know Jesus Christ personally. And I started sharing the gospel on the radio. They actually played the clip. Said, Praise God, if it was all for that one clip, then let the gospel be heard and let come what may come so that nevertheless through our commitment to say when that first clash happens that I know for certainly, it is my eager expectation at this moment that I will not be ashamed, but the words will be given at that moment to know what to speak. And I, I think that's not just for Paul. Obviously, it's not for Paul. All of these things are written for our own learning and for our own growth. And so Paul wants to say that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. And by the way, that's why when we come to verses 28, I'm sorry, 29 and 30, which Don spoke of already, um, I do want to think that those verses are directly tied to the previous ones. I mean, why is it that it is a gracious gift to suffer for Christ? Why is it a gift? I know it's a gift, but we don't yet know why until we see these things. Because in these moments that God gives us, He gives us opportunity to proclaim in the face of opposition, and proclamation in the face of opposition is always more effective. That's why it's a gracious gift to suffer. But it's not a gracious gift to suffer if we hold our mouth, if we're intimidated, and if we determine in our hearts, 
I will not allow this, or this suffering to go further. If we pull back the reins at that moment, I do not believe suffering for the gospel is a gift at all. It's only a curse. All right. Well, verse 21, and I'm almost out of time, but I'm going to go very quickly. I'm not going to cover it all, but verse 21 is what we know so well. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a verse that we all know, and, and uh, it's one that we've noticed often, and I think it's been abused. Because for many of us, we say, for me to live is Christ, which means if I live all through my life, Christ is the meaning of my life. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, so that's gain. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's wrong to think that way. I'm just saying that I don't think that this is what Paul is communicating at this moment. When he says, for me to live is Christ, again, we've noticed at the beginning that sometimes Paul will use the word gospel, and sometimes he uses proclaim Christ, because proclaiming Christ is the proclamation of the gospel, so for me to live is Christ. It is another, again, a euphemism for the gospel. For me to live is this proclamation of the gospel of Christ. That's what life is. I live for this so that in every situation I may be bold in proclaiming Christ so that Christ is echoed everywhere I go. That's living. So that also, you know, I mean, he does say later on, he also knows that he, he wants to make sure that in their own lives they're being urged on in gospel proclamation themselves. So to live also is to train believers to raise up young men and women who are not afraid of gospel proclamation. That's also a part of it. But, you know, it's for me to live is gospel proclamation. And then to die is gain. You see, because in the end of the day, it is far better to be with Christ than to be here proclaiming the gospel. And I know I had to work my way through that. But I do know that in the day that we stand before Him, God's eternal purposes in our lives are worked out. I mean, that's, that's, we have this eschatological goal in mind so that we might be presented whole before Christ and see Him as He is and find our moment-by-moment joy uninterrupted, untinted by human sin in His presence. That is in the end of our goal. But in this moment of life, I may not be quiet. Both life and death in that context are desirable. Now, I, I, I want to stop, and I, this might be my last illustration. I may not have got to the last of it, but that's fine. About three Sundays ago, um, an Iranian man approached me at the end of the service. He came forward and he said, I am a Muslim. I said, sir, what a joy to have you here. Welcome here. I'm delighted to invite you to this church. He said, oh, no, you don't understand. I was born last week. I said, are you telling me that you've surrendered your life into the hands of Jesus? He said, that's it. And with that, we fell into each other's arms. And he said, this that you've preached. I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And I was preaching through the part which talks about possessions, that we are not to hold them dear, and that we are not to build up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And he said to me, I want to be with you long enough to learn the gospel so that after learning the gospel, I can go back to my home country and preach the gospel there until Christ calls me home. I hugged him again, and then I said, can I pray with you? And he said, surely. And I just prayed. My prayer went simply like this. Holy Spirit, thank you that a week ago, you drew this man to the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus, Son of God, thank you that you took all of the sins of this man and they were nailed to your cross. And Father, thank you that before the eternal foundations of the earth, you elected him. And then he grabbed a hold of me. He was weeping so badly. He said, please stop. I can't take any more. I left him that day. He hugged me one more time, and he did a, a Near Eastern thing. He kissed me on the lips. <laughs> Still working that one through. Um, I left that, was kind of riding on a wave of that, not the kiss, the other stuff. And, and, and as I was walking out the door, a dear carnal brother approached me, and he was quite perturbed by what I had said. He said, I got more money than I can ever spend in my whole life. I don't like this idea about giving all that stuff away. I'd like to talk to you about that. And I just looked at him and said, not today, sir. <laughs> 
not today. And I walked away from him. He was a man not used to being said that too, but I was reminded again of what we must do. We must tell our people that to live is gospel proclamation in the face of opposition, seeing the hand of God directing by His meticulous sovereignty all the hardships that we face so that when the hardships seem insurmountable, through the prayers of God's people and by the help of the Holy Spirit, you will prove to have been faithful and will have more articulated the gospel than ever before in your life. Live for that and then die for glory. Tell them that's the only reason to live. And this is the mystery of the advancement of the gospel. There isn't a methodology that's created that can create that, but God's Spirit does. That's why verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy. And we're beginning to see what worthy means. Well, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I myself feel condemned by these very words, how much easier they are to speak than to live. I know that. But I also know, Heavenly Father, that these words come out of a realization that our God, by His meticulous sovereign care, is directing all of the issues in our life so that the maximum amount of people can hear the gospel and turn and be saved. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunities that you have given us in this hour. I thank you for the opposition that we face. I thank you because that opposition was brought by your own dear hand. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunities that have been given to us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we might indeed say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May that be the rallying cry, not only of us who are leaders, but for the people that we lead. May they be emboldened by our witness and by our example. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.